So today we're going to start with a little bit of review. Here we are, we're coming to chapter 3 in the book of Luke. Let me just uh, kind of restate the context. How did we get here? You know, it was just two weeks ago that we celebrated uh, Christmas. Luke is the one who gives us the very most information about that first Christmas. And then the time of preparation getting to Christmas. First, Luke lays out the background in chapter 1. He only takes 80 verses to do it. He sets the time frame in a what we would say is a clear, secular perspective. What was going on? Um, next, he tells about an, uh, an older couple uh, named Zechariah and Elizabeth and how God sent an angel to Zechariah when he was serving in the temple, a very unique time and told Zechariah that he, he would have a son named John. And then God used 400 years of a silence between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, until this time where Gabriel will speak to Zechariah. You know, where is God? What is God up to? Does God care about us anymore? Because we've got all of these outsiders like the Romans, coming in and taking over our government, and we can't do anything unless we have their permission. And then God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. And um, he told Mary that she would experience a miraculous conception and that this child would be great and he would be a great king and he would be the son of the Most High God, fulfilling many Old Testament prophecies. In Luke 2, the Christmas story is told. Mary and Joseph go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a three-day journey. And they, they go to register a census decreed by the Emperor Caesar Augustus. It is in Bethlehem that Jesus is born, fulfilling the prophet Micah. Then uh, God sends a host of angels to a very humble group of people, shepherds. And then the shepherds are invited to go to Bethlehem and see for themselves the gift God has given when he sent his son. And so they go. They are so excited. They go everywhere telling the good news. The Savior is born. And then it's only Luke that tells of Jesus' uh, circumcision and then his presentation at the temple. And when he's at the temple, something significant happens. God prompts two older believers, godly, a godly man named Simeon, a godly woman named Anna, and he brings them to see for themselves the one they had been waiting for the one who was born, who was to fulfill the promise of the coming one. Then it is Luke who gives a glimpse of Jesus's life at age 12, if you remember. And we, Mary and Joseph make their annual trip to Jerusalem from Nazareth, over 70 miles. And it is there that they find out and Jesus lets them know that he has to be about his father's business. Life is going to be a little more complicated for them than uh, just the ordinary 12-year-old, which is probably complicated enough. 
So today we come uh, to Luke chapter 3, and now Luke is going to take us back to that first baby, to John, the one promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was such a big deal that God sent an angel to announce his birth. It was such a big deal, there were two signs that went with this birth. And one of those was that Zechariah would not be able to speak until his son was named. So um, today we're going to look at the one who prepares the way, and he is called the voice in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So I want to invite you to turn your Bibles, and I hope you'll connect with your smart device if you have one. And let, let me just remind you, we have Bibles on the table. They're for you to use every Sunday if you need one. And the way you're going to benefit, because we don't put all the scripture on the screen, the way you're going to benefit is looking at the text yourselves. That's how we learn. And I want to remind us from Luke chapter 1, verse 80, about John. This is the last thing we know about John, Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And the child grew, this is John, and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. John is a very unique countercultural individual. He is going to go outside of the system. He's going to grow up in the desert, and he's going to be alone a lot. He's not worried about being popular. He has a deep sense of God's call on his life, and now we see his public appearance. So his time, verses 1 and 2, um, we see in uh, chapter 3, it's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Remember, Luke is all about historical detail. He's a Westerner. Luke is not a, and is, he's not a Jewish man. Luke, is, I don't think, is a right-side brain. I think he's a left-side brain. He wants details. He wants information, and he wants to organize it. And he has a very specific purpose. It's in the 15th year in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Caesar Augustus, that we met earlier, is dead. And now the next Caesar, Tiberius, has been... Uh, Caesar is a title for emperor for 15 years. And then it goes on, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Caesar is Roman. Pontius Pilate is a Roman. He's appointed as a governor in Judea. That means, and this may be really like old for most of you, but that means there's an outsider, an outside government ruling the people of Israel in their own place. And they're allowed to have little puppet governments, but they are not allowed to do anything unless the Romans approve it. And uh, Pontius Pilate is there to make sure everything goes like he wants it to. So we know that Pontius Pilate was residing in this historical period. Uh, And then we know that Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. There are several Herods. The most well-known was Herod the Great, but he's dead. And then his his, uh, family gets involved. But Rome steps in to keep this thing from becoming uh, all that Herod wanted to do. And uh, Rome divides it up into four areas. Herod is a tetrarch of Galilee. Galilee is in the north part of Israel. It is the land of Israel, but it's the north. Herod is a Jewish man, and he would call himself a king. His brother Philip, that'd be Herod Antipas, and this is 
Herod Philip, and he's a tetrarch. It means he gets a, a tetrarch means you get a quarter of the property. And he's a tetrarch of Illyria and Trachonitis. And that's up north. And then Licinius is a tetrarch of Abilene. He gets, and this is up in Syria. And he gets a portion too. We know practically nothing about him. Uh, and this was during the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You see how much detail Luke gives? He cares. He wants to mark this. This is important. And so uh, there, there are two high priests. There's only supposed to be one. What's this about? These are the same two high priests that will uh, reside at the execution of Jesus. So Caiaphas is the, uh, quali- the one who was supposed to be the high priest of Israel. And he was. But he got deposed by the Romans in the 15th year A.D. Think Jesus' life, 30 to 33, roughly, something like that. We can't be totally accurate. We know Jesus was a p- public for three years. So Annas was supposed to be the high priest. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. In three years, there have been five high priests. This is not working out. But they bring Herod as a part of it because the people really view him as the, the real guy. And Caiaphas is there to sort of be the one to represent the Jewish nation to the Romans. So this is a time. And then, this is what this is all about. This is the context. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is a description of an Old Testament prophet. This is how the Old Testament prophets, the word of God came to them. And now John is going to speak the words of God. Not every word he speaks, but he is going to proclaim God's word. He's going to speak for God. He's going to represent God's heart. And it's in the wilderness. Verse 3, we see his, his place. He went into, is this one of those? I hope not. He went into all the country around the Jordan uh, preaching. Let's, let's see that map. He went into the country around the Jordan. So uh, I hope you can see this. Always keep in mind, I just, you know, the reason I show you the map is because I want you guys to know where Jerusalem is. I want you to know where Nazareth is. That's where Jesus grew up. Things like the Jordan River are important. The Sea of Galilee is important. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was taken to the temple in Jerusalem. He grows up in Nazareth. And John grows up in the wilderness. And John is going to go out by the Jordan River. And all along there, John would appear. It's probably in the southern portion where he's focused right now. Uh, So he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching. Uh, Let me just, uh, this is maybe obvious, and I hope, you know, I restate things over and over again. But just, you know, in case this is not clear. This is John the Baptist. This is not the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, And he wrote the book of Revelation. That's the Apostle John. He was one of the 12 disciples. This is not him. This is John the Baptist. He's going to have a very specific role. And he's going to be dead soon. He's going to do his role. And he's going to be gone. And that's going to happen to us too. 
Uh, maybe not soon, I hope. But His message we see in verse 3, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John had a ministry of teaching, proclaiming God's word. And when people responded, they were baptized. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, this was not a baptism for forgiveness. This was baptism that was a sign of repentance. It, this wasn't like, okay, go get baptized. Okay, now you're forgiven. That, that wasn't that at all. John was very strong and clear about his message. This was to show repentance. Repentance is about changing your mind. It's about a change of heart. It's about going in one direction, doing your own thing, and then meeting up with God and turning to God and following Him. That's repentance. It's a changed life. It ought to be what conversion is, where we talk about somebody coming to faith and they turn and they follow God, and then they don't have to go back over and over again to the old life, but they just keep walking. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It means when we, when we sin, we, when we fall down, we get back up, and then we keep going. We don't have to go over here for six months or two years. We can just fall down, get back up, and keep going. And so uh, John had this ministry, and when people, that's why they were at the Jordan River, Baptism, to baptize, means to immerse. doesn't mean to sprinkle. It means to dip. They were in the Jordan River. That's why uh, they, were, they, they came to hear John. John is a fascinating person. Um, baptism was not a religious rit- ritual. In fact, there was nothing like this in the Old Testament for people. Yes, there were ritual cleansings. And then uh, outsiders, non-Jewish people, had to go through a ritual cleansing, like a washing, to sort of become uh, a follower of God. Um, this was about really being serious in your walk with God. It was about being humble, and it was about being submissive to what God wanted for your life. And John didn't want to see anybody get baptized unless that's where their heart was. Um, so uh, let's just, let's catch uh, Matthew 3. This is what Matthew tells us about John. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He was not worried about winning any fashion contest. He was unique. And this is, um, he's kind of taking the role of Elijah. He probably even looked like Elijah in appearance. Elijah was a prophet about eight centuries before Christ. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. You know, it's like a health net or something, but he is pretty particular. It's no big deal. It's not like this is more spiritual or anything, but that's... And people went out to him from Jerusalem. That is what is unique. Think about this. John is this weird, crazy-looking guy. He, he, people go out to him. How do they know about that? Well, there's a God thing happening at this time. God wants to get people's attention. And they hear about John. And, they, and they're curious. And they want to know more. Who is this? Is this a prophet? And so they go out uh, from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of Jordan confessing their sins. God is at work. People are going and they're hearing John and they recognize 
God is speaking. God wants me to change. I want to change. And people got baptized because they wanted to be submissive to God's message. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. So they didn't like, you know, let's sprinkle you out here. It was get in there and get wet. Be immersed. Uh, Then we have a, I hope we have a map here. Yep. And I just want to remind you too, Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where all the religious leaders are, the, the, the main ones, the, the high priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. This is the religious establishment, and it's pretty corrupt. They're just going through the motions. They're worried about prestige and who they are and the influence they have. And they're playing a little politics with the Romans. John, is, he's the one with a pure heart. He's out there doing God's work like an Old Testament prophet. And prophets called God's people on the carpet. And they reminded them of what the, what the law said, what Scripture says. And they said, you need to change. You need to come back. You need to turn back to God. And so people were leaving this religious establishment to go out and hear this hippie kind of a guy preaching the word. Because he was not like them. And... Um, We see his authority in verses 4 through 6. Where does John's authority come from? Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice, this is why John is the voice, because he's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. Luke now will quote right here, verses 3 through 5, Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, as it is written in the book of of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Where is John? Out in the wilderness, kind of the desert area. It's close to the Jordan, but it's the wilderness area. And here is the message, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths to him. So this is John's role, prepare the way for the Lord. Who? The Lord. Who is it? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's preparing the way for. That's a pretty unique, significant role that John has. And he, he goes on to say, Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain shall made low, and the crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. This is Isaiah describing John's ministry. It's a picture of creation. Creation responding to the creator. You know, valleys are going to be uplifted. The mountains are going to be leveled. And the way is going to be made smooth. And what, this is, what is this about? This is a metaphor for people's hearts. Getting people ready to hear Jesus. The multitudes will gather to follow Jesus. One of the reasons is because of what the role that John played getting people ready to hear. Turning their hearts back to God before Jesus goes public. And the, those who are prideful and think they're better than other people are going to be leveled. And those people who are humble in spirit and are submissive to God are going to be raised up. And all people will see God's salvation. All people will see Jesus. First of all, 
He's coming soon near you in the nation of Israel. He's going to be there in the flesh. But like Old Testament prophets talked about the coming of the Lord, they often talked about a first coming and a second coming together, and they couldn't tell them apart. It was like, here's the first coming, I see that. Here's the second coming, I see that. But they don't know that there's a time period between the two. And here, he says, all people will see God's salvation. Well, did that happen in the first century? No, not close. Have you seen God's salvation? Maybe you've experienced salvation in Christ. Maybe you've met your Lord. That's awesome. But there is a time when every one of us will see God's salvation in a person. And every knee shall bow. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Every one of us will bow. Some people are just going to be overwhelmed with worship. And some people are going to be forced to bow. Every human, every angel will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. Verses 7 through 20 describe the work of John's ministry of preparing the way. Uh, And here again, Luke gives the most detailed of John's ministry. His teaching, verses 7 through 14. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized... You brood of vipers. What a good introduction. Probably wasn't an introduction, but he did say this. Matthew tells us he said this specifically to a group of religious leaders from Jerusalem. Probably Sadducees, Pharisees kind of leaders. They're probably standing up close. And maybe they've already thrown a few questions at him. So John is speaking to the whole group. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? calls them a brood of vipers, snakes, and it's almost a picture of a wildfire in the desert. When a wildfire comes through, I am told, I have never experienced this, but snakes come out of the rocks and out of holes, and they move away from the fire. That's smart. And it's like, John is saying, it's like, you know the the fire that's coming, you know the wrath that's coming, and you are scared. You've come out, and you brood of vipers, who warned you? And he has a strong message. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, you say you've turned and you're turning to God. Well, as you go forward, your life needs to show it. You know, what is your attitude like? What's your heart like? Do you walk the walk? For us, it's if we call ourselves a Christian, are we living like a Christian? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is John's message. Uh, And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We don't need to do that. And this was a danger for the Jewish people because they indeed had Abraham as their father. They were descendants of Abraham. Uh, They were the children of Abraham. And there were promises to Abraham's family. God kept his promises They were the chosen people, chosen because God would choose this individual race to bring his son. The Messiah would be born through the family of Abraham. But John makes it clear that's not what this is about, having the right family or the right bloodline. This is about a heart. This is about your heart. Is it submissive to the true and living God? 
Um, this is kind of a danger. You know, we see it in America. You know, people grow up and there's churches. And did your family go to church? Yeah, we went some. Are you Christian? Yeah. Family believes in God? We have a danger. Oh, we're okay because we, our family believes in God? Well, what do you believe? I mean, who is Jesus? What did he do for you? There's a message that's very clear in Scripture. What, what our responsibility to God is. It's not just about being an American or having gone to church in your life. That's not what it's about. It's about your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, John goes on and he says, Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. God does not have a problem making children. He can do it out of stones. And really what God wants is our new hearts. He wants spiritual births and spiritual children. And that's why we need to be born again. Um, so God is just saying, hey, if you think you're going to be okay just because you're a descendant of it, just because you were a Jewish person, that's not what this is about. Verse 9, he says, the axe is already at the sea. People were coming out in droves to hear what he had to say. And he was saying things like, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, and that means you. That was his message. If your life doesn't show that you are a true follower of God, you can just expect that your life is going to be cut down and it's going to be thrown into the fire. There's going to be an eternal judgment and an eternal fire. And the Revelation calls it the lake of fire. And so John knows his audience and uh, they ask this question. Well, what should we do then? It's really a good question. We've got a problem. Now they're making progress. They, they know they have a problem. What does repentance look like? And so John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. What is John saying? If you do these good things, you'll get saved? Nope. He's saying, if your heart is right with God, you're going to be generous. Not stingy. Not self-focus, not just being worried about number one. If your heart is right with God, you are going to be a generous person. Verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Let me remind you about a tax collector. Tax collectors in Israel in the first century were usually Jewish men. And they were hired by the Romans, which made them extremely unpopular with their neighbors. And the way that they earned their salary is they collected taxes from the Jewish people as instructed by the Romans, as, as was lawful. And the Romans also included a little more percentage to cover the salary of the tax collector. So there was a certain portion that they were to charge that covered tax to Rome and their salary. But tax collectors had a reputation for seeing how far they could go with each person got greedy, and they kept adding so that they could have more greed. And they developed a, quite a reputation about accumulating wealth 
in a way that was really self-centered and dishonoring to people, dishonoring to God. Verse 13, what does John say? Don't collect any more than you're required to. He doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't be a tax collector. That's wrong. He says, no, do your job. Be honest. Treat people well. Treat people the way you would want to be treated. Verse 14, then some soldiers ask him, and what should we do? Probably some Roman soldiers in this group. What should we do? Well, you know, soldiers walk around with other equipment, and they have authority from Rome, and um, they're powerful, and they are imposing, and they make people nervous. And all they have to do is speak a little bit loud, you know, maybe rattle their spear a little bit, or their saber, if they had sabers, and they could get people to do things. They could get people to give them money. They could blackmail people, and they did. What, is, what does John say? Does he say, okay, stop being a soldier? Nope. He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. That's a problem with the human heart. Being content with what God has provided for you and for me. Ever struggle with being content? Are you okay with God? It's okay to ask God for help. And as you need more to ask God and to trust God. But are you okay with his provision when he provides? Are you content? That's a heart thing. It's not about how much is in your bank or how big your income is. What you've accumulated, it's about right here. Basically, he's saying, be generous, be honest, be content. Those are the biggies that he talks about right here. Verses 15 through 18, John is very clear about his identity and his role, which is a great model for us. Are we clear about who we are and what our role is? The people were waiting expectantly, verse 15, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah. So this has been going on for weeks and months probably, and John is developing this status of celebrity. John is that, you know, that godly Christian hero, and it's dangerous, you know, when Christian... uh, Leaders become sort of the rock star of their generation if they just don't continue to humbly walk with God. And John uh, doesn't want to be elevated in any way. And he doesn't want anybody to be confused about who he is and why he is here. John answered them all in verse 16. I baptize you with water. Here we are in the Jordan River. But the one who's more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John has a deep humility for who he is and who is coming. He knows the one that's coming deserves complete worship, full devotion. And he understands. He says, I'm really not worthy to tie his sandals. Now, we, just, we get that picture, but we don't know how lowly that would have been in their culture. Sometimes... Uh, if you were a disciple of someone, if somebody was, if there was a teacher and you were to serve your teacher as a disciple, 
Even disciples didn't tie their sandals of their rabbis. And sometimes it was meant for servants to tie sandals. But sometimes servants were told, you don't even have to do that. That's not your job. It was viewed as a lowly, uh, smelly opportunity. And John uh, said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. John is preparing the way. He's getting hearts ready to meet Jesus. John is stirring curiosity about God, about what God is up to. Um, John is uh, stimulating a spiritual curiosity about Jesus. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I baptize with water. The one who comes is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he's also going to baptize with fire. When did Jesus do that? In Acts chapter 2. This was after Jesus died and went back to heaven. He ascended into heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit to baptize those who were believers in Christ. In the, in, in the Holy Spirit. And uh, it was about taking those people out of the world and placing them into the body of Christ. It was forming this brand new body of Christ that never existed before. People were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues was an evidence of what was going on. God just chose to do that. God doesn't do that every time somebody comes to faith and is baptized by the Holy Spirit. The second refers to that he will baptize with fire. Is that the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. I think it's a reference to the judgment to come, the wrath to come. And he's going to, when he comes again, uh, he's going to, in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to bring judgment on earth. And then ultimately there's going to be a judgment in the lake of fire. Um, and and the, the picture he gives in verse 17 of this, I think, that explains the, the, what we would say is the baptism of fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. His pitchfork is in his hand. It's like a, like a first century farmer and he's uh, harvesting his wheat and he scoops it and he throws it up in the air and the wind will blow away the chaff and the wheat will fall down and then he takes the wheat. That's what we were here for and that's great. Chaff blows away, starts a fire with that chaff and it burns up. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the end of the age when Jesus returns and he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous at the end of the age. Verse 18, with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Good news? That sounds like bad news. Because good news always has the bad news. It's not good unless you know how bad the bad news is. We forget that. What does that mean? It means you and I know people who right now are separated from God for eternity. And they will experience the wages of sin, which is death. And that's eternal death. And Jesus called it hell. And we forget that. The good news is good is because Jesus died for us and he paid the penalty for our sin. We just like that part. Sometimes that's why we don't care about people who don't know that yet. And Jesus left here left us here so we would help people 
know about the good news. It isn't here because we have to scare people. This is just the way it is. This is God's word. This is what has come. God is holy. He is righteous. And he is just. And he is waiting to fulfill all righteousness. Because he has allowed so much sin. And he's just being patient and waiting for the church to be the church and to help other people. So we can take as many people to heaven as possible. Verse uh, 19 and 20 is John's imprisonment. When, and this doesn't happen immediately right here. John is including it in the story. You have to remember, writers don't always have to be chronological like we want them to be to fit our mold. John has a purpose. He's just going to let us know what the outcome is. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, this is a later time, because of his marriage to Herodias, Herodias his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. That's what you get for following God. It could happen. So John has this message of you need to turn to God. You need to deal with your sin and recognize it. You need to humble yourself and you can be forgiven and you need to be baptized. And the same message was for Herod. Herod was a Jewish man. And he understood, the, he knew about the Old Testament scriptures, but he didn't like somebody like John calling him a sinner. Some people don't like that. You don't have to call people sinners. You, but John, so this was a public deal. You got a king who kind of stole the wife of his brother. While they were still married, both Herod and his brother were married, and he took his brother's wife into his home before they got divorced. And John says, don't do it. Doesn't honor God. Herod, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn back to God. And he ends up in jail. Later, John will have his head removed because of Herod. But we aren't there yet. John is still baptizing, which brings us to our last point where the Messiah, Christ, is identified in verses 21 and 22. So I just say Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew concept of the Old Testament. The the word is Mashiach. It means anointed one. Christ is is the word in the New Testament from the Greek, Christos, and it means anointed one. They're the same. It's a, and it's this promised one. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He is Jesus the Christ. We see his baptism, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. It's sort of like, so there's this big line of people. John has been preaching, now people are coming to be baptized, and Jesus just gets in the line. Keeps waiting his turn. And pretty soon, there he is with John. And John goes, whoa, what are you doing here? And he gets baptized. John does, or Luke doesn't tell us much about this. It says that uh, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Luke is the one who notices that the most that Jesus prays. Pretty much before everything he does. Jesus was praying and heaven was open. I think there's a correlation. Jesus was praying. Heaven was open. 
which is a huge sign of God breaking through the history of man. Matthew gives a little more information, which is helpful. Matthew chapter 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So he comes from the north down to the south on the map. But John tried to detour him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? See, John is so humbled in the presence of Christ. What, what are you doing here? I can't baptize you. You're not, you don't need forgiveness of sins. I need to be baptized by you. John understood who he was. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. God has a plan for me to be here. God has a plan for Jesus to be baptized. Jesus is going to identify with all of humanity and their weakness and their sin and their failures. And he's coming forth. And this is huge because um, this whole thing, he's identified. So John is the voice preparing the way. Jesus is here. God ordained this moment. Next, next slide. Uh, John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. By the way, you don't... I, I always remind people this. He don't come up out of the water when you're sprinkled. He, he, was, he was immersed in the Jordan River. He went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. A dove. It wasn't a real dove. It was like a dove. It was a picture. God didn't need to have the dove there, but he did it so people could see something significant happening. And it's, it's God's uh, confirmation. It's his blessing. It's his stamp of approval on Jesus. This John has been preparing the way. Here he is. And we have... Okay. And his confirmation comes in verse 22. Back to Luke. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Now another voice. This isn't John's voice. Now the Father speaks about his Son. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That was like one of the most significant moments in all of history when God spoke about his son. The one he loved. This is a clear marker of God becoming a man, the son. What we have here, we have the father and the son and the Holy Spirit present, marking the significance of Jesus' public ministry begins now. He's the promised one. All of the Old Testament prophets had waited for this day. It is here. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. As I have read that time after time again, you know, I didn't learn. This is for you, parents. I didn't learn until I was in my 30s and 40s how hungry I was for my father's blessing. I didn't even know it until I was an adult. I had a good dad. He was a hard worker. He was a moral guy. He was good to me. But he didn't know a lot about fathering. He wasn't affectionate. He didn't know about that because of his dad. 
And he didn't know how to affirm me. He didn't know how to say he was proud. He didn't know how to say, well done. And I just grew up hungry. I said, oh, I wish I had a dad like that. And I couldn't even blame my dad. And I so wanted to tell my kids, I don't want you to grow up without that. I, I want you to know that I am well pleased. I want you to know how much I approve of your life. And it doesn't mean you approve of everything. But when they're doing something good, let them know how much you appreciate that, that you're well pleased. Bless them for good. Okay, uh, boy. We are done with the passage. I have four lessons. Um, I'm, I'm going to go through them fast. So the first one is that every Christ follower has a role in advancing God's kingdom. I just want to say this. John uh, had a role. It was very specific and unique. John fulfilled his role. He did what God wanted him to do. Every person who is a follower of Christ has a role. Do you know what your role is? We all, there's been spiritual gifts given to us. We have different functions. We are, we are one in the church and the body, and we have different things to serve, different ways to serve. You know, not everybody needs to be a pastor. Some of you may be pastors. Not everybody needs to be a pastor or a teacher. All of us have roles. All of us have to serve, need to serve in some way. That's why we need people in Bridge Kids. We need people uh, serving in the lobby with, with our hospitality and um, greeters and ushers and our graphics and our sound and our worship team and our growth group leaders. And you serve. If you go to work on Monday morning as a Christ follower that wants to represent Jesus, you are serving him. And that is a very important role. And when you are following Christ in your home, that's a very important role. It's crucial. When you're volunteering in the community, it's, you're a great model for Christ when you're seeking to represent him. You, every one of us has a role. I'm reminded, I just want to remind us, do you know your role? Second lesson, God desires that our lives be fruitful in demonstrating our faith in Christ. That's what John was calling people to repent. And he said, okay, you are a follower of God. Show it by how you live. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to bear fruit. John 15, 5 reminds us, John 15, 5, do we have that? Jesus said, I'm the vine. So he's using a metaphor here. Jesus is the vine. The vine is where, you, where the branches get life. He's the vine, we're the branches. Our life, spiritual life, our strength, our help, our vitality comes from him. He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the only thing you get out of the message today. That would be worth it right there. We need to stay close to Jesus. We need to align with him. We need to get our strength, our vitality, our life from him. And we will bear fruit. Our, our lives will show it. Things will happen. Um, things like our attitude of being loving and kind, generous, patient, uh, having self-control with anger. Those things are fruit. When, when we share the good news with people, that's, that's bearing fruit. Uh, thirdly, knowing Jesus should produce an attitude of deep, deep humility. And John is a great example of that. He is totally humble when Jesus comes to him. 
In John uh, chapter 3, verse 30, can we show that one to skip down? He must become greater, I must become less. This is what John says in the Gospel of John. And he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must continue to have more influence in my life. And I just need to keep submitting to him. It's like a process. It's more and more as I grow as a Christ follower. And the last one is baptism is for all genuine believers in Christ as a sign of a changed life. That is conversion. Now John's uh, baptism was unique and not to be repeated. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. We have Christian baptism in response to what Jesus instructed us. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says this. Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So that's our job as a church. We are to go. We are to make disciples, help people understand who Jesus is, the good news, so that they can become followers of Christ or a disciple. And we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Christian baptism, and that's God's name right there. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we are to do. It is a desire of Jesus Christ that every Christ follower be baptized as a Christ follower. By the way, babies aren't Christ followers yet. Babies can't understand the gospel, and babies can't choose to be baptized. And it is Jesus' desire. These are his instructions to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the next slide says, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and he promises to be with us to the end of the age. He wants us to follow him. So baptism is not a part of our salvation. Baptism is a step we take after we come to faith in Christ. It's really a, 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 the fruit, a step. It's starting to show fruit of our heart that's been changed by Jesus. Baptism is a picture of Jesus' death. Uh, when we baptize, we talk about dying with Christ and being buried with Christ when we go into the water and then being raised again to a new life when we come out of the water. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. And it's a picture and a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus gave two ordinances to the church. He instituted and he says, I want you to do this. And today we celebrate communion because he wants to remind us, he wants us to remember what he has done for us. Um, Communion is to take a small piece of bread and a cup of grape juice or wine. We use grape juice. And the point isn't, oh, are we supposed to have alcohol or not? The point is to remember the death of, of Jesus. Taking communion doesn't make us better people. Taking communion is a step of obedience. Obedience makes you a better person. And um, it's a very important time for the church. Jesus is instructed to give the church this opportunity for us to be spiritually clean, for all of our sins to be forgiven at one moment, to be sure. But the deal is, your heart has to be right. It's not about going through the motions. It's not just a religious act. It's about your heart. 
And it's about truly being thankful for what God has done for you. And the bread represents his body that was nailed to the cross. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for you. It paid the penalty for your sin, all of it. And that is what our salvation is about. It is enough. God is satisfied with what Jesus did. It's not about you trying to keep doing more things. And the reason we want to do things for Jesus is just because we love him and we want to follow him. So, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. God's desire is that our hearts be pure. And he's given this to us as Christ followers because we, we sin. We sin in the work during the week. We fail. And we need to confess. and for, You can confess and forgive a hundred times a day. Jesus has given this at least once for the church so all of us can experience this at the same time. So um, we're just going to bow and I'm going to thank God for the bread and the cup for our communion. And we are to remember the death of Jesus. And God says we are to examine our hearts before we do this. So uh, let's just bow in prayer. And as you are silent before God, talk to him from your heart. Are there things in your heart that you need to confess? Could be an attitude. Could be your words. Could be your thought life. Could be some of your actions, your behavior. Could be your stinginess, your lack of contentment. Your dishonesty, deceiving. What does God want you to do in your heart? Just talk to him. Ask his forgiveness. Believe his promise that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And if you've confessed, absolutely your sins are forgiven. It's a promise. God keeps his word. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for the bread that reminds us of when you were nailed to the cross. That we deserve death, but you took death for us. Thank you. Thank you for the cup that reminds us of the blood that you shed on the cross when you were nailed, when your hands were pierced, and your feet, when the spear was thrust into your side. Thank you for your life for our lives. We don't deserve it. We acknowledge that. We humbly say, thank you. And may our lives go forth and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.